This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Tuesday, November 2nd. Coming up, Missourians are prescribed anti-anxiety medications at one of the highest rates in the country. But long-term use of these drugs can lead to serious problems, sometimes lasting for years. I do things and not remember, kind of like amnesia, almost like being drunk when you're on them, and it wasn't enjoyable by any means. And school board meetings in Kansas have become the center of protests around masks, vaccines, and critical race theory that sometimes even led to threats against board members. We'll hear about the impact that's having on school board elections, which are normally low profile. But first, some headlines. Today is election day. Two major races we're watching are the mayor of Overland Park and the mayor of the unified government of Wyandotte County and Kansas City, Kansas. Polls in Wyandotte County and Johnson County are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. There are also other local races throughout the metro. Tune in tomorrow for a look at the election results. Residents of Jackson County will be required to wear masks in indoor public spaces for at least another three weeks. By a vote of five to two, legislators extended Jackson County's mask mandate to November 22nd. It requires everyone five and older to wear masks in all indoor public settings to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Though new cases have declined in Jackson County, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention still rates the county's COVID transmission risk as high, which is the most severe risk level. Kansas State Representative Aaron Coleman of Wyandotte County pleaded not guilty to a domestic violence misdemeanor charge yesterday afternoon. KCUR's Dan Margulies reports. The first-term Democratic representative was charged with causing bodily harm to or having physical contact with a family member. Although not identified in the criminal complaint, it appears the family member was his brother, Alan Coleman. Johnson County District Judge James Feeland set a personal recognizance bond for Coleman of $1,000. He ordered the 20-year-old to appear on December 22nd for a hearing meant to give offenders who commit a relatively minor criminal offense a second chance. He also ordered him to undergo a mental health evaluation. Democratic lawmakers previously called on Coleman to resign over alleged threats he's made to women and other alleged misconduct. Joe's Pizza in Westport served its last slice Sunday morning. For 24 years, Joe Addington operated Joe's Pizza by the Slice from the back of Kelly's Westport Inn. Yesterday, he published a brief note telling patrons he was retiring to spend time with his hobbies and grandchildren. Colleen Kelly is the co-owner of Kelly's Westport Inn. She says Joe's mainly catered to two types of customers, those who came in for a quick lunch and those who sought out an early morning drink and a midnight snack. It's just the end of an era is kind of how I feel about it right now. It's kind of hard to imagine Joe's Pizza not being back there. It's been 24 years, so um, most of my life he's been back there. Kelly says a new tenant will fill the pizza shop's space and will include a pizza based on one of Joe's recipes. But the bar hasn't released more details on that replacement. Across Kansas, voting is underway for hundreds of seats on local school boards. And it's happening as school board meetings have become the center of protests around critical race theory and other issues. Kansas News Service education reporter Suzanne Perez spoke with editor Stephen Caranda about these newly polarized and partisan elections. 
Suzanne, what are school boards in Kansas seeing? What's driving, you know, so many angry comments that we normally haven't seen in these types of races? Well, boards of education here, like everywhere across the country, are finding themselves on the front lines of some really controversial issues right now. Those include COVID safety measures, particularly masking and mask mandates, and critical race theory. So that's led to some emotionally charged meetings and even some threats against board members members. Have we had any of those types of threats here in Kansas? Well, a school board member here in Wichita tells me he recently reported a threatening email to police. Um, Earlier this month, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland directed federal authorities to hold strategy sessions just to address this problem. School board drama is so widespread. In fact, it was even the focus of a recent sketch on Saturday Night Live. Do you have a question about the school district's COVID policy or your child's safety? I don't have a child, and I don't live in this town. You You know, that really shows how much national focus there is on this. But with all this emotion, how has that changed these, uh, you know, normally sleepy school board elections? You're right. They are usually quiet, under-the-radar types of races. But there's a lot of positions up for grabs, including board majorities in several large districts. You know, candidates for these positions are usually retired teachers or administrators or people who've been involved in schools. Uh, This year, in what could be a first for Kansas, at least one National Political Action Committee, the 1776 Project PAC, is pointing money and endorsements at local school board races in an effort to elect BOE members who oppose critical race theory. All right, that's a phrase that that we hear thrown around a lot, but, I mean, what really is it? Critical race theory, or CRT, as they're calling it, is the idea that racism is woven into public policies and laws. Now, Kansas education officials have said repeatedly that it's not taught in schools, but a lot of these candidates are pointing to lessons on equity or social justice, and they're conflating the two. They're saying they're the same thing. So if we have this year outside money coming into these races, is there a way for the average Kansan to learn about that? Are school board candidates subject to campaign finance laws? Well, for the most part, no, because the Campaign Finance Act applies only to school districts with more than 35,000 students, and that is one district in Kansas, which is Wichita. Mm -hmm. So that means there's really no limits on campaign contributions and really no state oversight. Candidates still have to report their contributions and spending, but the deadline isn't until well after the election. What are we really seeing on the ground here in Kansas? I mean, how are these newly politicized school board races playing out? Well, here in Wichita, for example, there's a slate of four candidates who were recruited by the county Republican Party, and they're running pretty much as a block. Now, there are highly contested races all over the state. I spoke with Judith Deedy, who helped start Game On for Kansas Schools. She's been following education in the state for well over 20 years, and she says she's worried that this swing toward partisan elections could have long-term effects. When you start upping the financial commitment to win these races and the the nastiness, that's a, a major disincentive to get the right people to run. We were just talking about how much this election is different than what we've often seen in these races. What's really at stake for us going forward? 
Well, you know, it's not a bad thing for school boards to be a major issue on the ballot. They do control the largest portion of local taxpayer money. So voters need to look carefully up and down their ballots, including local school board races. And that general election is coming right up on Tuesday. That was reporter Suzanne Perez and editor Stephen Caranda. The Kansas News Service reports on health, the many factors that influence it, and their connection to public policy. If you're enjoying Kansas City today, tell us how you feel. Give us a call at 816-235-8930, where you can leave us a voicemail with your feedback. We'll be back after this message from our sponsors. At UMB Private Wealth Management, a division of UMB Bank, UMB always puts your interests first. UMB's registered advisors are fiduciaries, so that means they are legally and ethically required to only recommend investments that are the best fit for your individual circumstances. UMB provides one-on-one guidance to help you make savvy financial choices on your wealth-building journey. Tap into high-touch financial planning services so you can earn, grow, and create the life you want. Learn more at umb.com slash wealth hyphen management. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Missouri had the fourth highest rate in the country of residents taking anti-anxiety pills, and that was before the pandemic hit. Experts say the state's lack of mental health care coverage leads to doctors overprescribing these medications, which can cause long-lasting problems for patients. KCUR's Alex Smith reports. When Emily Zide was in her early 20s, she started experiencing panic attacks after surviving a sexual assault. Where she lived near Branson, Missouri, the wait lists for local mental health services ran eight months. So instead, she went to her primary care doctor, who prescribed her Xanax for daily use. Zide says the initial relief provided by the meds was quickly overshadowed by their side effects. I do things and not remember, kind of like amnesia almost like being drunk when you're on them, and it wasn't enjoyable by any means. Zide was doing ballet, but she says the effects of the medications caused her to quit dance. When she told doctors, they dismissed her complaints and increased her dose. Within a few months, she struggled completing even routine activities. I felt like just a shell. Even though Xanax, Clonopin, Valium, and other benzodiazepines have been around for decades, they've only been thoroughly tested in trials for a few weeks' use. But it's now understood they can significantly improve impair cognition, memory, and concentration. Still, use of these drugs is widespread. Even before the pandemic, almost 6% of Missouri residents were prescribed benzodiazepines, according to industry data. That's the fourth highest prescription rate in the U.S., and research suggests it's because Missouri has a serious lack of mental health care providers. Washington University psychiatrist Jesse Gold explains that today, specialists prefer to treat anxiety with therapy and antidepressants. Benzodiazepines still have a use, she says, but only for short-term or crisis use. They're definitely the psychiatrist version of an opiate. They're definitely the medicines that we go like, does this person need this? Is this right? The problem is psychiatrists are hard to find in Missouri. The state has the largest percentage of areas with mental health provider shortages in the U.S. 
and that leaves a lot of Missourians turning to primary care doctors for help with anxiety. Harvard researchers have found that these physicians, rather than psychiatrists, are doing much of the prescribing of benzodiazepines. It's unclear how many Missourians are taking these drugs for more than a few weeks, but studies estimate that about a quarter of benzodiazepine patients in the U.S. are long-term users. This can lead to tolerance to the medications and dependence on them for everyday functioning. Stanford psychiatrist Anna Lemke explains that this problematic use of benzodiazepines is happening in the same places we see opioid abuse and for the same reasons. So we see um, more benzodiazepine and opioid prescribing in areas where there's a socioeconomic distress, where access to health care is um, not as equitable and where people lack access to alternative treatments for things like anxiety. In the last year, the FDA issued a black box warning about the risks of benzodiazepines, and a recently approved law in Missouri will increase the insurance reimbursement for mental health care, a move that advocates say will help address provider shortages. Benzodiazepine patient groups say there's still a lot of work to be done to warn the public about these medications and to help the long-term users who want to get off them. Even when a patient wants to quit benzodiazepines, the process of doing so can cause increased anxiety, insomnia, even seizures. After a year, Emily Zide finally stopped taking Xanax, and she described the months of withdrawal as entering the gates of hell. Now that she's through the worst of it, Zaid says she's taking a different approach to dealing with trauma. Because I've learned that you have to process it and deal with it, and it's far better than the anxiety that you'd ever experience from benzo damage. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Alex Smith. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This podcast was produced by Byron Love and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. You can read Alex's story on anxiety meds and Suzanne's story on local elections on KCUR.org, where you can also find our live stream. As always, you can listen to Kansas City's NPR station live on the radio at 89.3 FM. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. Tomorrow, we'll give you a rundown on the result of local elections in Wyandotte and Johnson counties. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. 